0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: Uh, thanks for coming out. This is the uh, last uh, seminar of the semester, and it's a great one. We get a chance to celebrate uh, this uh, new book here. Can hand that to me? Uh, Humanomics. Um, By Vernon Smith and Bart Wilson. It's uh, uh, several years in the the making as they've pursued uh, more than any other uh, group or research team in modern economics uh, examining sociability. This is actually a big research topic at the moment. I mean, you have Bowles and Gintas doing it, a lot of various people, but Vernon and Bart have been doing it in particular, uh, looking in, in both educational. Uh, initiatives as well as research initiatives at looking at the interaction between the humanities and the social sciences to be able to uh, integrate again uh, the Smithian program. So we're really thrilled today to have uh, Vernon uh, back and Bart back uh, uh, in the in, in department here. Um, as all of you know, I mean the problem with introducing someone that doesn't need an introduction is you end up by screwing up the introduction. <laughs> I, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna try not to do that because I'm not gonna give a long introduction. But Vernon Smith is uh, the 2002 Nobel laureate in economics. Um, he is uh, one of the founding figures um, in uh, experimental economics and in uh, the foundations of price theory and, and market theory. Uh, Bart Wilson, uh, the other uh, uh, co author on this, Um, is also in the Department of Economics at Chapman, uh, formerly a a professor here at George Mason University. Um, Bard also works in this area of uh, experimental economics and exploring uh, sort of micro-foundations of the origins of property rights and uh, various different other uh, institutions which uh, allow for human sociability. We also have with us uh, today Charlie Holt, uh, is a professor at the University of Virginia. Uh, Charlie is an experimental economist as well. He's also um, the author of a casebook in the field of experimental economics on how to introduce experiments into the classroom. Uh, so it was an amazing resource for all of you who uh, wanna become uh, engaged in what's called active learning with your students and get them involved in it. Um, As, uh, I'll tell a little story here, I borrowed from Charlie when I was in Prague, this is 15 years ago, and we did a, uh, basically, a public goods game uh, with the the contributions and everything, and there was a kid from Belarus there whose parents were part of the Communist Party, and he hated the fact that communism collapsed and everything, and he collapsed on the stage in front of all the kids after the result, and we didn't get enough contributions, and he said, "You're." me lose my faith in humanity. And I said, this is awesome. (laughs) So that's not really sociability point. Anyway. anyway. Um, And then finally we have uh, Ryan Hanley here. Uh, Ryan uh, is a political scientist at Boston College. He's uh, the author of uh, several studies having to do with Adam Smith. And also brought out a new edition of *The Theory of Moral Sentiments* many years ago, um, and so uh, you can uh, look up his his books as well on uh, his work on Adam Smith. He was one of the top Adam Smith scholars in the world. Okay, so let me uh, introduce Vernon. You come on up, Brian. This is for you, uh, mm-hmm. and we can get started. So please welcome Vernon uh, Smith.
2: Uh, okay. Well. Thanks, Pete. And you should have pointed out I'm on the faculty here, <laughs> emeritus. <laughs> so, <coughs> and I'm, I'm in I retirement, have. And have been for many years, as you know. Uh, you know, I, you know I, I gave a talk on Adam Smith in southern Italy. It'd be about a dozen years ago. And Nick Phillipson was in the audience, and, and of course he's one of the outstanding biographers of. David Hume and Adam Smith. And afterwards he came up and he said, you know, I've never heard anyone make these particular points about the theory of moral sentiments." And I said, that's because when Bart and I started to study it, we had these unanswered questions. And we found them. <laughs> we somehow thought we would found, find them. It, it took a dozen years. To actually produce what, what what you see here, and uh, now uh, so how come after 260 years we're still talking about this guy? Uh, well, Kenneth Bolding visited Arizona in, in 1976 and gave a talk in which he said that Adam Smith was the first great post-Newtonian scientist. Well, uh, Newton died uh, 200 years <coughs> before I was born. I remember that date very well, 1727. <laughs> I, was, I was born in 1927. And, uh, and Adam Smith would have been about, about five years old. Uh, five years old done and indeed uh, Adam Smith was a great scientist. And I asked myself, what really makes a great scientist? And I think there's two outstanding uh, uh, attributes of a great scientist, kind of two very special skills. Uh, one is you need to be really good at what the Germans call the Gedanken experiment, mental experiments using the imagination, you know. Adam Smith used that very very effectively. And and it's and you, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think it's it's good to return to combining literature and economics is because of the great use and value of narrative. Uh, So, and and the second thing is to really be a careful observer and be passionate about observations and realize that the whole idea is to find the meaning underneath observations. And throughout the, beginning with the history of astronomy, uh, Adam Smith's first book, but last published, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and the wealth of nations, you have a very careful uh, observer. And he's looking for uh, explanations that are not transparent and visible to anyone. And so the metaphor of the invisible hand is really really an incredibly good uh, uh, metaphor. And so why are we social? Well, Adam Smith says, imagine that you are brought up entirely separated from any other member of the the species. He says, you cannot know anything more about what it means to have a deformed brain and to have a deformed face. Bring that person into society and you give him the mirror he wanted before. Okay, and in that mirror you see the countenance and behavior of all the people that we meet as we go through life have a tendency to leave their mark on us, especially about what they approve or what they disapprove, you see. So uh, Smith says that along about the time we start to school, we first have playfellows. And that's when we enter the great school of self-command because our playfellows are not as partial as our, they're they're much more impartial than our parents (laughs) in tolerating, you see, our actions. And they let us know when our actions meet with their disapproval. They let us know when they meet with approval. And he said, "That's entering the great school of self-command, and almost no one can live long enough not to constantly be adapting and changing in in that framework." And you know, that's it's incredible. It's beautiful poetry, and it's right. Uh, it's right. And and you know, when we I first started doing experiments, it was just an An unbelievable success and there were market experiments and it was an unbelievable success for markets but not for economic theory because no one then believed that a market could find uh, a competitive equilibrium unless everyone had complete information that's right there in Jevons What he did was maximize utility subject to an income constraint, and given prices, found optimal quantities. That wasn't a theory of price, it was a theory of optimal quantities given prices. Who gives the prices? Well, the great socialist economist said, that's easy. (laughs) Lange and Lerner, these guys said, who gives the prices? I mean, the, the model fit socialist economics perfectly because we'll give the prices. We'll try out the prices, and that's the way you make socialism work. Of course, Hayek was bothered by that. He, he thought that couldn't be true, and he stuck to his guns long enough to find out, give us a lot of wisdom as to why that wasn't true. But if we look back, Now, and of course I'll I'll agree, we have a lot more vision than we had then, but if we look back now, I think at the wealth of nations and ethereal moral sentiments, it's all there. Every bit of it is there. Uh, It's not easy to understand. Smith's 18th Century King's English is very, very precise, and we don't use English very precise, quite precisely anymore, nothing like he did. So every word counts. And when you read something that captures your interest in material moral sentiments, read it again. And keep reading it and think about what you're reading. And, and try to ask yourself, what kind of a mind is this coming from? And see if you can kind of start to get into a habit of trying to think like Adam Smith. And I don't know whether Martin, I can claim to have succeeded, uh-huh. but I think we've succeeded far enough to be able to resolve the great paradox of the 80s and 90s. Where we found in in ultimatum and trust and other two-person games that own maximizing utility model that works so well in markets just it, it just explained almost nothing. Okay. And I remember, I remember when Kevin McCabe and I did our experiments on the, what we call the voluntary versus the involuntary trust game. And our our intuition was that it was very important that the second mover saw what the first mover gave up in passing to the second mover. And uh, we were thinking then, we had sort of a reciprocity model, which I now believe is, it it isn't that it's wrong, it's just not very deep because that, uh, Adam Smith gets reciprocity as a theorem from more fundamental. Considerations, and I think that's the right way to uh, to do it. But so we took a uh, compare the ordinary trust game with one in which the first mover could do nothing but pass to the second mover, and there was no alternative. Well, that completely changed the results. Instead of around two thirds to three quarters cooperation versus the rest defecting, it was, t- it was that much defecting because there was nothing to defect to, you see. And so it's <coughs> interesting. We thought that falsified the social preference model because if it's just the matter of not only having your payoff in the utility function but the other person's payoff and that's the essence of the social preference model, uh, we thought this, this falsified it. <laughs> Guess what? It didn't. They just put the, the. They what we discovered that it was intentions mattered. They put it in the utility function. Whatever you find, you put it. You, you back it out. Oh, that's interesting. Let's put it in utility functions. Well, as a result, you see, you explain everything and predict absolutely nothing. <laughs> nothing. Oh, uh, that's the Ptolemaic world. Where you just add a new epicycle, you get a new observation. You add a new parameter. You see, and you do it after the fact. It's really bad science, but but actually, it's what most scientists do and how they think. Uh, which kind of shows you that you don't have to have your thoughts together right necessarily on that on the methodology of science in order to do do great science. Well. Uh, Bart's going to tell you a little bit more about what's in the book and talk about it. I just wanted to kind of give you give you that background and also I think this more than anything what I would like to see come out of this book is that people start reading Smith. you know get your free copy from Online Library of Liberty. you know it's the Dougal Stewart. Uh, edition, it's not the Oxford edition, because they no longer, uh, Liberty Fund having absolutely uh, <coughs> created a worldwide demand for the book, Oxford now won't let them <laughs> continue to have the copyright. <laughs> so yeah, I think there's probably a price at which you could do it, right?
3: <laughs>
2: so. <laughs> Anyway, welcome, and I'm going to turn it over to Bart here, so we'll get into some of the substance, and then I think in the discussion we'll get a little deeper.
4: First, I want to thank the Mercatus Center for organizing this book panel, and Stephanie and Malia for putting all the details together. It's always good to come back to George Mason, and George Mason plays a key role in the development of this book. So, in fall of 2004, Run and I taught our first co-taught our first undergraduate course together here at George Mason, and we were reading various scholars in the, from classical to the neoclassical, and we're combining with articles in experimental economics. We read Smith and we read Hume, we read Val Ra. Jevons, and Hayek, but it was the first time that I had read with a class, Theory of Moral Sentiments and the Wealth of Nations. I had read the book the previous summer with some students. I didn't really get it all, Uh, didn't get much of it, Um, but it was for the classroom, the idea of stealing from Libby Fund, this idea that you work out the ideas together in discussion, that we first used pieces of the Theory of Moral Sentiments and the Wealth of Nations. And it's out of those discussions that inform how we wrote this book. How we learned about how people were reading and and interpreting what Smith was saying and how we were reading and interpreting and misinterpreting what Smith was saying. And that's how we kind of set up the first part of the book to set us up. And it was, but it was done in a process where we were redoing experimental economics, reading the papers, doing the experiments with the students as well. And so the experiments were informing how we were reading Adam Smith. And Adam Smith was giving us new ways to interpreting the experiments, the questions that Vernon mentioned that we had. We didn't know where th- what the answers were, but we knew there had to be some answers somewhere and that this was a good place to look. And so that is the idea of the book, how both classical thinking can inform modern thinking about these ideas, particularly sociality in human beings and how the modern techniques and the modern way of thinking about things can help us interpret what can be very dense and penetrating uh, prose. So I want to, for those of you who brought books, uh, I want to just take you through the main parts of it. um, And uh, I also have a a couple extra ones if there are students who need a copy and don't have one, uh, please see me afterwards. Mm Starting from the preface on page, page uh, Roman numeral 14, this is the kind of the, a key sentence to f- frame how we think about things and what our message is to economists generally and experimental economists more specifically. Right at the bottom fundamentally, it is the human capacity for sentiment, fellow feeling, and a sense of propriety that is the stuff of which human relationships and the general rules to be followed are made. It's those three things. Much has been made, and rightfully so, of sympathy. Much has been written about how sympathy is important. It's the first two chapters of the Theorem All Sentiments. But less has been written about sentiments and even, I think, much less about sense of propriety. And all three of those are important. What, are those, what do those mean? Uh, page 11 put those three things together, right in the middle. The core message we developed from the theory of moral sentiments is that humans are other-regarding in their personal interactions because we learn to follow rules of conduct that permit us to live in the company of our fellow human beings. Such rules are situations sensitive to the effect of our actions on the benefits and hurts of others, as well as to our own self. The human capacity for fellow feeling in particular for mutual fellow feeling, is the primary mechanism through which we are socialized creatures. Without such innate capabilities honed as practice skills, there would be no human sociality in Smith's world. We are not other-regarding because we reductively prefer to be social, but through human empathy we come, as Robert Burns puts it, to see ourselves as either see us. In plain and unmistakable language, Smith says, though it may be true, that every individual in his own breast naturally prefers himself to all mankind, yet he dares not look mankind in the face and avow that he acts according to this principle. Here is the logic of Smith's system and sentiments as we interpret it, developed and applied in this book. And that is an important part of how we think about this project. Economists, when they reacted to our experiments motivated by Adam Smith, said they already had a model until you take some model to beat a model. And that subject heading in the book is literally from a referee report. (laughs) (laughs) And so we thought we needed to put together some logic of how the moral sentiments is laid out, and that is the structure of it. Starting off with people have common knowledge that all are self-interested and are all locally non-satiated. More is always better and less is always worse than any reference state. Otherwise, we cannot be socially competent rule followers because we cannot be sensitive to who benefits or who is hurt by our actions, and to properly balance concern for ourselves and concern for others. Our rule following judgments are highly context dependent. The situation and the pattern of benefits or hurts together affect the action chosen. What enables such sociability is our capacity for mutual fellow feeling. So that's the fellow-feeling part, uh, page 21, where I found that there was much less written on sentiments even though that's the title of the book, <laughs> The Theory of Moral Sentiments. But what does that mean? This is a word that my students really wrestled with, you notice in the discussion they never brought it up spontaneously, it was always emotion, everything was about emotions, it wasn't about sentiments, it wasn't about passions, it wasn't about affections, because it's not their word. And so, what does that mean? Uh, I found, came across this uh, cinnamon discriminator, and then when Vernon and I started mining this for gold, (laughs) um, they're very good at giving you the fine definitions and shades of what these words mean, particularly putting them in a context. Sentiments, as the cinnamon discriminator Charles John Smith explains, are things of the heart and mind. Emotions in modern parlance may be of the heart, but they are certainly not of the mind. Emotions in the 20th and 21st centuries are physiological, non-cognitive, involuntary feelings, which stand in dichotomous contrast to cognitive thoughts of the mind. We have emotions and an intellect, but the two do not overlap, and nothing really falls in between. Corresponding poles in the 18th century were the passions and reason, but unlike modern divide, Smith and his contemporaries bridged the two with sentiments and affections. If intellect and reason are about thinking, and emotions and passions about feeling, sentiments and affections are about both thinking and feeling. The theory of moral sentiments explains the social world by combining moral feeling and moral thinking. And then for the third one, page 31, right in the middle. Without much impropriety, we can say that Smith uses a sense of propriety to denote the knowledge of what is the morally fit thing to do at this time and place and to know it not through mindful thinking, but through bodily feelings. A sense of propriety is not just an internal feeling. It connects a person to the external world because it is from other human beings that we know how to act in a morally fit way. And to kind of just flip back to the uh, Preface, page fifteen. But sociality and our general rules of conduct all must be learned. Our sense of propriety is what we learn. Vernon talked about that up front. And as feeling is at the heart of Smith's observations on morality, sympathy, sentiments, and the sense of propriety all entail feeling. Sympathy is a spontaneous and mutual transmission of feeling from one person to another and back again. But our feeling is not self-contained. We take part and participate in a state of feeling in other people. We say participate in the state of feeling, not simply participate in the feeling, to stress that it is the observable, sensible condition of the person with which we sympathize, our circumstantial condition which manifests the internal feeling that has mastered the other person. And while feeling is at the heart of Smith's theory of morality, it would be a mistake to characterize it as an emotive theory. Sentiments and a sense of propriety are equally important. With sentiment, Smith connects thinking to feeling, and with a sense of propriety, he connects knowing to feeling. Smith's observations on morality rest on feeling, thinking, and knowing. It is in the triad of these three universal human mental predicates that sentiments offers insights into how we think about economics some 250 years after it was published. And it is what the second half of the book is about, is how we can show you can interpret many experimental games through this particular model. And Charlie will be giving his comments, talking about the experiments and commenting on them, and leave it to the question part to go kind of more deeply how we apply the model. But that's that's the core of the book as it's applied um, in the first half.
5: Good afternoon. Uh, it's a tremendous pleasure to be here. And I have to begin by saying that um, um, in TMS2, which is such a, uh, a key text for humanomics and for Barton Vernon together, um, Smith has a striking line that the duties of gratitude are, quote unquote, the most sacred of all the beneficent duties. And so I feel incumbent upon me as a good Smithian to begin by thanking, of course, GMU and, uh, and uh, the Mercatus Center for putting together this wonderful event and for the kind invitation. But also, I have to, it's a tremendous pleasure to be able to give a public acknowledgement of the great debt that I and many other Smith scholars have to Bart and Vernon. Uh, over the course of the past several decades, I can't emphasize the degree to which uh, I personally have been in their debt. Um, I have to say I never understood Smithian resentment, nor did I understand my own moral psychology until I was a subject in their own experimental lab. Uh, it's a real thing, as anybody that plays a dictator game will tell you. Uh, but also, uh, uh, more generally, uh, what they've done for Smith scholarship in opening new horizons has been incredibly important now for, for several decades, and this book is going to continue this this project. Um, I want to keep my remarks fairly brief, uh, raising two specific uh, points that I think are really worth uh, taking out of the book to recognize some of their key contributions and then raising one friendly challenge that hopefully will uh, open up a little bit of discussion. Uh, I'll preface this by also uh, doing something that a good Smithian should also do, which is um, you all know, I don't need to quote to you, uh, the great praises of the division of labor and the pin factory from Wealth of Nations one one. Uh, in the early drafts of the Wealth of Nations, uh, Smith, uh, in his handwritten notes, Uh, goes so far as to explain that even academic labor and especially philosophical labor is subject to uh, uh, greater productivity when we stay within our narrow realm so as much as i like uh, interdisciplinarity work i know my limits well enough to defer to charlie to talk about the experiments in the book and i'll focus just strictly on the areas that are closest to my own academic work one to say one brief point about something I think that's incredibly important and fruitful in humanomics for political and moral theorists like myself. Uh, another second point, uh, incredibly important, I think for Smith scholars, specialized scholars like myself, and then I'll, I'll turn to the, the third, uh, more critical point that, uh, that uh, again, uh, friendly, uh, but, but, but critical indeed. Um, let me start with the first. And so um, all of you know uh, Vernon Barth's work But one of the uh, points of departure for humanomics in this project more generally, is a deep and sustained critique of the limitations of Max U theory. And so one of the things that they aim to show, of course, is that it's not just all about self-interest, as many generations of economics, uh, students as well as philosophers, have been taught to think about self-interest. But also, as Bart alluded to in his opening comments, bringing back in sympathy and also the concept especially the Smithian concept of propriety. But what's really interesting to my mind about how they do this is the route that they take for mining this concept within Smith and that is they don't take the easy road of simply positing the other-directed alternative to self-interest and simply positing sympathy as some sort of uh, 18th century uh, analog for what goes under the name of modern altruism or other-directedness. Instead, it seems to me one of the richest insights of the book is the idea that socially beneficial rule-following develops specifically out of interest itself. And so one place where this claim comes out especially clearly since uh, Bart cited the text and many of you have it with you, uh, on page 128, they make the um, direct claim that TMS, quote, offers a methodology that models the emergence of rule-following conduct among postulated strictly self-interested individuals, end quote. And this seems to me a crucial move forward, both as I have my 18th century hat on and I think about how we understand 18th century moral psychology but also from the perspective of someone who works in the contemporary social sciences, the reductive understanding of egoism versus altruism, self-directedness versus other-directedness. Smith subverts this, and Vernon and Bart clearly see the value of this in understanding how self-interest, and to use Smith's own term, self-love is simultaneously self-directed and other-directed, and can take on these multifaceted and multi-directional forms based upon specific context. That strikes me as a remarkable, important insight that Vernon and Smith have at the center of their book and that I only mean to highlight here for its potential fruitfulness. Um, Let me turn to a second key takeaway from humanomics, uh, now specifically uh, from the standpoint of an Adam Smith specialist. Um, Bart stole a little bit of my fire by quoting what to my mind is one of the best uh, uh, pages in the book on page 11 where, and I'll just use the first part of the quotation there, where um, as Bart himself just recently read, TMS teaches that, quote, humans are other regarding in their personal interactions because we learn to follow rules of conduct that permit us to live in the company of our fellow human beings. And this seems to be incredibly important, especially for Smith scholars to appreciate. Smith did not write a treatise on human development or a treatise on education as many other prominent early moderns did, as Locke did, as Rousseau did. And so there's a temptation, I think, for Smith scholars to see nature as doing a tremendous amount of work as opposed to development and learned acculturation. TMS 1111, the first sentence of the whole book, begins with the language central to Bart and Vernon's project that uh, how selfish soever man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his nature. This is the point of departure for the whole book. You all know that in The Wealth of Nations, it builds to the end of book four with the praises of the quote-unquote system of natural liberty. For generations, we have assumed then that for Smith, most of the story begins and ends with what nature gives us. However, this overlooks to a remarkable degree Smith's sensitivity to the ways in which humans develop, and to use Barton Vernon's own phrase, this comes from the preface in Roman numeral 15, point blank, quote unquote, for Smith, sociality is learned behavior. That seems to me to capture something that's uh, deeply important to Smith himself and that in fact helps us appreciate a little bit more of what's going on in Smith rather than simply positing a sort of reductive understanding of human nature, a descriptive even understanding of human nature. There's real attention in Smith to the ways in which quite frankly we change and the ways in which our culture or what uh, Bart and Vernon use its language of context, the ways in which we're shaped by our context. Smith was sensitive to this in ways that I think that modern Smith scholarship hasn't always been. So one of my hopes is that Smith scholars will take up and read and appreciate one of the lessons here of sensitizing us to Smith's deep interest in not just natural moral psychology but developmental moral psychology and the ways in which human beings are shaped by their cultures and contexts. Now with all that said, those seem to me two very important points I could go on In the interest of time, I won't, but let me raise one question. Again, a friendly objection, I hope, that uh, I hope will get um, the ball rolling as we move into into discussion here. Um, This comes out specifically from the idea of learned other directedness and learned sociality that I think is so important uh, in their project. And so throughout their book, Bard and Vernon come back again and again to that opening line of the theory of moral sentiments, and rightly so. There's a famous line that people that do classical philosophy know, Socrates, the beginning is more than half the whole, and in the first line of the Three Memorial Sentiments, I think you get more than half of the whole project. And so the first line, as it reads in Smith, is, quote, how selfish soever man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his nature which interest him in the fortunes of others and render their happiness necessary to him though he derives nothing from it except the pleasure of seeing it, end quote. Now, one of the remarkable things that Bart and Vernon do in their uh, book is they offer us a quote-unquote modern translation. That's their of words of, uh, uh, of this particular line. And here's how it appears uh, in Barton Vernon's modern translation. And this is on page 9 of, of Humanomics. They translate TMS 1111, I think that was the right number of ones, uh, to read, quote, however selfish we assume people to be, our capacity for mutual fellow feeling guides us in learning context-dependent rules of conduct that enable us to live in harmony with others, end quote. Now, This restatement seems to me remarkably helpful for a variety of very specific reasons, not least of which is the one that I've wanted to discuss up to this point, namely the emphasis on how we come to quote-unquote learn rules of conduct via sympathetic exchange. That said, I do wonder about the last part of the translation where it's explained what matters here and what's at stake. For Bart and Vernon, why does this matter? It's, again, in their translation, so that we can, quote, live in harmony with others. But Smith himself says something different. They're, of course, offering a translation of it. But what Smith himself, of course, says in those phrases is that the, quote, unquote, happiness of others is something that is, quote, unquote, necessary to us. And so if I read Smith correctly here, A. Smith uh, correctly here, what we're concerned about here isn't peaceful coexistence or a simple social harmony, getting along, he seems to be after something more. What matters, quite explicitly, isn't simply harmony, but happiness. And so this raises the key point. It's obviously obviated if one thinks that Smith is only discussing, in the language of happiness, social harmony and nothing more. But I think that by inviting this sort of discussion, to make the claim not only to use the language of happiness, but to make the claim that the happiness of others who surround us is in fact necessary to us for our happiness. That's a very strong and pointed empirical claim about human nature. One would want to ask an empiricist perhaps, an experimentalist, is it true? It might be interesting to test. But it also opens up for a moral and political philosopher the question of what else might be here in this concept of happiness beyond simply social harmony and uh, and peaceful coexistence. Um, A moral philosopher might hear the language of Aristotelian eudaimonia among other things in the rich discussion of happiness that Smith develops throughout the book. Without saying more about that front, it seems to me simply that we need to ask the question of what else might be at stake here and what else Smith might be after in this language of happiness, especially given his later discussions of virtue and character. Concepts that are not absent from humanomics, but certainly ones that are not as foregrounded as questions of social harmony. And so I want to ask this question specifically, and I'll end simply on this note, is that it seems to me a problem not just for Aristotelian moral philosophers coming to Adam Smith, but even indeed from the perspective of Barton Vernon's own project. There's a really lovely uh, uh, comment that Barton-Vernon make on um, uh, when they uh, are discussing Frank Knight's critique of scientism, uh, which to, to which they present themselves as largely friendly here. Um, here, Barton-Vernon write, this is the last thing I'll read, it's from page 55 of their text, that quote, the problem is not what choice maximizes some objective, but an appreciation for exploring and discovering rules of life, the three principles of which we would describe and i believe it's there barton vernon speaking in the in the first person plural the first the three principles of life which we would describe as what is good what is true and what is beautiful end quote and so to put the question then in bart and vernon's own terms from that that learned sociology can bring social harmony but is it enough simply to teach us not just harmony this learned sociality but also to use again this language that they've invoked, what's good, what's true, and what's beautiful. And so if not, it seems to me that one of the key questions here that perhaps one would want to extend the logic of of (coughs) humanomics, or perhaps not to, but is this key question of what more beyond or in addition to simply socialized learning within a contextual environment might we need to be able to appreciate these goals of life, as Vernon and uh, and uh, and Bart describe them, the appreciation of what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. Now, uh, with that in mind, uh, I'll pass the mic here, quite literally, over to 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 Charlie to discuss, um, presumably, things that will be very different from the good, the true, and the beautiful here, but perhaps <laughs> not.
3: It's really an honor to be here and be able to talk about this book. I've known Bart ever since he was a graduate student uh, in Arizona working on on market power experiments. And Vernon, somebody once asked me, uh, an English professor, who who is your intellectual hero? And without hesitating, I said Vernon Smith. He always has been. Um, This book, I, I really enjoyed reading it, a good book is one where when you read it you keep thinking back about it and even when you're reading another book you're thinking about that previous book and I found myself in the last several weeks every time I would talk to an economist uh, I would refer some of the issues back to humanomics issues And so I recommend it highly (laughs) to economists especially to behavioral economists And, and I was trying to think of six things here that that came to mind one is it it's changed my perspective about economics for example, I always wondered well, why does selfish maximizing, maximization-based theories, why do they work so well in markets and not so well with small groups? Uh, the other, and, and so I'll come back to that. But the other thing is I think it'll, for most economists, they've never read theory of moral sentiments. So it'll deepen your understanding of Adam Smith to see them sometimes side by side, the same ideas. Uh, One kind of side benefit of the book is all of these examples from the history of science. Those are like rich little details and I enjoyed those tremendously. The book will help you create a a skepticism both about classical economics and about standard behavioral economics, but it suggests an alternative and that provides a unified framework that integrates human elements such as mutual sympathy, which they call fellow feeling, uh, discovered preferences, endogenous rule following, and critical self-analysis and the last thing is it's a philosophical book but it's not a word salad you know it's driven by observation and experimentation and so I found that to be particularly uh, interesting so uh, the first of those just changing perspective I like the idea of concentric circles. You start with your family and then as you get older, you, you have some school friends and then wider and wider groups of acquaintances until you bump into the impersonal economy. And so the idea that these are two worlds with different norms of behavior in each one uh, is very interesting. And, and in his, uh, southern, I was at a session at the Southern Economics Association where Bart was talking about the book. And at one point he said, you know, uh, the market's impersonal, and developed economies provide exit options that are not otherwise available or even desirable in terms of personal relationships. And this reminded me of a paper I'd done with a student of Vernon's, uh, David Schmitz, who comes around here some, and Kate Johnson a couple years ago. And we, they wanted to do prisoner's dilemmas. I said, oh, prisoner's dilemmas are so boring, there have been thousands of them. They said, no, 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 this is going to be really interesting. We're going to let people choose their partners. And so basically, each person at the beginning of a period chooses a scale. A scale of zero cuts off the link, there's there's zero earnings. A scale of one, you get the standard prisoner's dilemma, where if they both cooperate they get a dollar. A scale of two, all the payouts are doubled, and the losses are doubled, so there's more risk. So if you both cooperate, you get two dollars. A scale of three, you get three dollars. And so this is an example of what we saw, like in the top row is somebody, ID2 is matched with another person. In period one, they both cooperate, so A is cooperation, and they have a one-time scale. So one of them was unwilling to go up to anything higher. In period two, now they're starting to trust each other, they go up to two time scale. In period three, three times, and after that, it's just all gravy. They're making three dollars a period, they're really happy, and then they, they knew the number of periods, so there's usually some defection right at the end. Uh, that creates a little tension, but we saw, that's the general pattern, we, we saw steady, high cooperation all the way through until the very end. And then in, in the second one you see someone who meets a defector in the first period and the link stays inactive, In the third, to me it's interesting, that somebody defects and they're inactive and then they come back together and try to restart, and they, but they seem to come back together with the intention of defecting on the other one. So once trust is gone it's really hard to bring it back. And we did somewhere that we let them meet a new person every period for like 10 periods. And well, what would happen would be if we limited the number of links they could have, but if you cut off a link and then try to add somebody, you're, you're in a poison pool. You're, you're running into people who, who either got defected on by somebody else, so they're not trusting, uh, or else they're somebody who defected and got broken off and they're looking for a new link. Uh, and so the people, even though defection earns a dollar more, the people who co- cooperated more earned money learned more, and the subjects were really interested. They said things like, who do I talk to? Who can I email? How can I work in the lab? <laughs> can you help me figure this out? Uh, I thought it was very, they were, you know, even a year later, I always thought subjects talk about experiments. I worried they talked to each other, and a year later I came back, and we were running a totally different thing. It was a year after these, and people were sitting out in the hallway talking about that choice of partners experiment from a year earlier. I was just astonished that it had such an impression on me. Um, the second reason that I like the book a lot are the Adam Smith quotes so here's a here's a comparison of you know when I would read Adam Smith before I'd see the word self-love or own interest and think oh self-interest and not not paying attention to the phrases but look at the phrases in blue which each which other men can get along with that's theory of moral sentiments as long as he does not violate the laws of justice uh, that's wealth of nations so, so here you see well Moral sentiments provides more of the social perspective, uh, what which other men can get along with. I thought that was very, very interesting. Um, this one I particularly like is we suffer more when we fall from better to a worse situation than we ever enjoy when we rise from worse to better. Uh, so, that, so to a behavioral economist, that's loss aversion, and and they base some of their analysis on that observation. Uh, That's 200 years before Harry Markowitz in 1952 provided a real clear mathematical definition of loss aversion and a notion of a reference point, which was 30 years before prospect theory. But uh, Adam Smith was much earlier, much earlier. Um, There were all these examples from history of science. So one is about Robert Brown, a Scottish botanist, who was looking at water trapped in a grain of pollen. Pollen was produced by a living creature so when he saw the water molecules moving he attributed that to some sort of life activity. But then he fa- saw water molecules in a crystal they've been there for millions of years and th- the same type of motion so he, he realized that provided an experiment that helped him change from it like an incorrect initial perception based on the context. Uh, now as theorists, when we do experiments, we're very much influenced by our own theories. You know, It's like looking at the sky with, with a preconceived notion of what, where the dipper is or something. You see the dipper and you, you see patterns uh, that might not be there in the actual data. Uh, in other words, the subjects may be seeing things differently from the way we as theorists see them. And, and this book makes that point again and again. Here, uh, Bar and Vernon say, behavioral economists do not have such a non-human alternative to isolate their own humanity and objectively test their theories. When studying ourselves, there's no escaping the transposed echoes of our own humanity. Uh, in terms of being uh, skeptical about classical and behavioral economics in the preface, they start right off by pointing out that it, it's, it's an exercise in circular reasoning to just assign a name to, some, to a robust empirical regularity uh, like reciprocal behavior and the addition of parameters to a utility function in in some sense is a logically circular reduction that can produce a theory of everything. So that's a pretty harsh critique of of what most behavioral economists do uh, right out the box. Now, I I thought it was very interesting reading the experiments. For example, uh, it's obvious that fairness matters when you see an ultimatum game data, but you know, uh, if one of the experiments hides the other person's payoffs and all, all of a sudden uh, people become much more; uh, their, con- their behavior conforms much more closely to selfish maximization behavior. In the trust game, uh, if there's a prior entry op- option, so if the first mover gives up something like equal high payoffs for both and comes into the subgame uh, where where they pass something to the other player who could then reciprocate or not, uh, having observed that initial action has a big impact on the amount of cooperation you see in the subgame. And, and that was Bart made that point. Uh, so think of it this way you can take away the entry option, which they do in one of the experiments, and, and you see different behavior in the subgame from the other treatment where it was there. So basically, holding the subgame payoffs constant, uh, the intentions that are implied by the initial decision really matter. So any theory that's just based on observed outcomes, like pay, payoffs associated <laughs> with, with experiment earnings, uh, restricted to the subgame, it's going to give the same prediction to both of those treatments but obviously the data are different so the context matters good and bad intentions are inferred from prior decisions and from options foregone uh, at the southern economic session Bart mentioned that uh, standard social utility models miss all of the action in terms of meaning intentions and reference points now I thought that was an excellent point point. and then he goes on to say so we need a new measures of perception and intentionality and I think that's, that's really important because you see, uh, an example of a new measure would be Charles Nassair has worked on facial recognition software where, where he can look at people's faces before they start the experiment and make predictions about whether a price bubble will form, for example. Uh, see, that those are, are measures of emotions that, are, that don't depend on actual payoffs. And I was trying to think of how could you design an experiment that would be a little bit more closely aligned with the dual principles of beneficence and the matching pair principles on injustice. And there's a problem. That is, if, if, you, if, if some activity merits reward and you give the subject a, a way of rewarding the first person, then all of a sudden the initial action might, might have been motivated by the reward or deterred by a punishment. So when you put those things in at the end, it sort of blurs the interpretations of the initial decisions. And so these alternative measures could be very useful. Uh, the other thing is it provides a unified perspective based on human elements. Uh, and I, I, like, I like this quote from their book. They, they said, in both sentiments and wealth, action is driven by discovery in a world of uncertainty and consequences that are known, unknown until attempted. Through repeat social interactions and trade, people adapt their responses to better themselves as well as others through their gains from exchange. And so I'm thinking about that, well people have different experiences with different groups of other people and so they develop, the, the preferences are formed dynamically, people have differences in preferences and they're, therefore they're subject to judgment errors and of course I'm thinking about quantum response equilibrium in game theory models where you have some stochastic elements that can have a, a big effect when you have interactions like in a game. Uh, they use Another thing I really like is they use Adam Smith's own words to construct a precise framework based on two pairs of beneficence and injustice propositions. And, and so they, they use Smith's words, then they to write, write down their propositions, and then these are tested through a sequence of experiments. I found that to be very uh, persuasive. The last thing is the book is a philosophical book based on observation and experimentation. So, so, one thing I've learned from this, as I mentioned, is I have a better feeling, I think, for why experiments conform more, cl- more closely to selfish maximization based theory in a market context. And you, so, you see, in a market, there's almost always imperfect information. You, you really don't know what the other person's value is. So, it's hard. So, fairness things are blurred by that because you're not quite sure how, mu- how much they're benefiting from it. Uh, competition masks the effects of punishments. You know, if you try to punish a seller, well, there's another buyer out there that's going to take your place. Uh, endowments are more legitimate in a market setting. A seller is a seller because they've created a business, and even if you just put it into a market context, as Vernon found in some of his dictator and ultimatum game experiments, y- you get more uh, self-interested behavior. Uh, uh, one of the exper- one of the experiments described in the book, uh, Bart was a co-author. It, it was with Tim Salmon, and uh, I thought this was really excellent. I was telling Rosemary Nagel, who was visiting our department the other day, and she says, wow, that's a fantastic experiment. Who thought of that? Uh, so, Bart. <laughs> <laughs> so what they had is the buyers had private values, like in a market. So the seller doesn't know their values. The seller has two units to sell, and they're two bidders, and the seller runs an English auction where you raise the price sequentially. The high bidder wins. At that point, there's one unit left. So the seller makes a take it or leave it price offer to the remaining bidder. They don't know that bidder's value, but they they know kind of where they dropped out of the auction. Uh, And what, what turned out was that the buyer profits were very low. Those offers were very aggressive, right up near the max. And the rejection rates were only about 4%. So putting the ultimatum game into a market context yielded very different outcomes. And you see, if the buyer rejected that sale, the buyer and the seller would earn zero on that unit, but of course, the, the seller earned money on the other unit. So, so it blurs the effect of, of this these fairness considerations. And it's, of course, it's more extreme in a market. How much time do you think I have left? Do you, does anybody know? You're good. About five minutes? Ago? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I have two, um, two observations at the end. So the only time I ever estimated these social utility mod- models with like the, this is that we're going to look at the Fehr-Schmidt model in a minute. This was an experiment I did with Jakob Array in 2000. So it's two years after the fair schmidt paper was published and what we did is we decided we're going to pit uh sub-game perfect selfish preferences against something that depends on fairness or fearness as we called it. <laughs> And so the horizontal axis is a two-stage bargaining game. In the first stage, the proposer uh, offers an amount of a pie to the responder. If they reject, the pie shrinks, and they make a counteroffer in the final stage, which is an ultimatum game. So in theory, the responder ought to be able to extract the full remaining pie in the second stage by just offering the proposer back a penny or two. And and of course, we know that won't happen, but that's what the theory predicts. So if this is the pi remaining in the second stage, we we did seven different treatments. Uh, You know, when the the pi remaining is 240, in other words, it it doesn't shrink at all, then the proposer would have to offer 240 uh, to get the responder to accept. And then as, if the pi shrinks halfway, the proposer would have to offer half the pi to get the responder to accept. And if the pi doesn't, if if the remaining, if it shrinks all the way, then the proposer uh, wouldn't be able to get anything more than a penny or two from the responder. So the dashed line is the subgame perfect Nash prediction, and then what we did is in each of these treatments we changed the endowments. We had exogenous common knowledge cash endowments, uh, and so over here on the left we gave the proposer a big amount of money, and the responder like only 25 cents. And over here on the right we we gave the responder a lot of money, the proposer only about 25 cents, and so. The offer that would equalize the payoffs is the dotted line. So here, subgame perfect Nash is a slope of plus one. The equal payoff offer has a slope of minus one. We wanted to see what happened. Well, obviously, the data has a negative slope, so it's a, it's a, uh, a clear rejection of subgame perfect Nash. And but we had another goal. And oh, by the way, when it's 50-50, there's not much. These are standard deviations. There's not much difference there. That's real sharp. Um, so, but, but I, had, I have one concern about the circular utility critique because basically you could estimate parameters for envy and guilt from this model, and we did. So let's, let's look at those and you can decide whether you think we learned anything or not. Uh, so the envy parameter is you get your payoff, and if the other person gets more than you, you suffer a penalty. So that's like minus alpha times their payoff minus yours if theirs is higher. The guilt parameter is you might feel guilty if you get more than they do so there's a penalty minus beta times your payoff minus theirs if that difference is positive positive. and we had seven treatments and two roles so we had 14 decision situations and many of these decisions they got real number you know lots of penny diff, diff amounts coming in that were accepted or rejected so we had a lot of data and a lot of variability in the decisions that they faced so we're able to estimate these parameters with high precision. So first of all, we estimated the same guilt parameter for both proposer and responder. Do you think that would be higher than than the wait a minute? We estimated the same envy parameter. Do you think that would be higher than the guilt parameter or lower? Envy means you don't like it when the other person makes more than you. Guilt means you feel bad when you make more than them. So so which parameter, envy or guilt, do you think would be larger? Yeah, yeah envy. Okay. Uh, the second thing is, do you think the for the proposer and responder, we estimated, we found that they seem to have different guilt parameters. So who do you think would feel more guilt <laughs> in this setting? Remember the proposer, the first mover, the proposer goes first, makes an offer. The responder, if they don't, if they like it, they accept it. If they don't, they can reject and make a counteroffer. The proposer. Yeah, the proposer is going to have more guilt, and so so that that's what we found. So these were our parameters. Uh, this is. Uh, Envy, guilt for the proposer, 0.66, goes for the responder, 0.12, a lot lower. All of those are highly significant with T's of, you know, six or seven. Uh, yes, very much.
2: That's in Smith, The envy is a big thing. Yeah. The source okay. of much of the troubles of mankind.
3: <laughs> okay, so my conclusion is I, I think that these outcome based models, they leave a lot out of the, lot, lot out of the action, as Bart said earlier. Uh, you know, they leave out intentions and other things that, that can be very important. Uh, but I felt like by by estimating this, I, I had a better feeling for, uh, for what was going on in this setting. And the last thing I want to say is, uh, many of the comparisons in their arguments involve qualitative comparisons. So I was wondering if you could... And so what they'll do is they'll hold the payoffs constant, like payoffs in subgame constant, for example, and change something about the context. What if you held the context constant and changed the magnitudes of the payoffs to see what might happen? And, and I'm sure they've tried this. But th- this, I thought back to a, a game from the Ten Little Treasures paper again with Jacob Murray, where we have these two games, and the first player can either choose safe or risky. And then the second player can either punish P or not punish N. So the top gain, the second player's payoff, punishment reduces it. uh, Let's see, punish reduces the first player's payoff from 90 down to 60. They they got 70 to start with. So if they they get 90, that's good for them, but bad for the second player. The second player could punish, but the cost is really high. They have to reduce their payoff to 10. In the bottom game, everything's the same except their cost is only two cents. They only reduce their payoff to 48. So as you can see, in the bottom game, there's a lot more punishment, and the first player anticipates that uh, and stays over on the left side 32% of the time. In the top game, they only stay on the left 12% of the times. 88% of the outcomes in the sub-game, perfect match prediction. So I think it'd be interesting. I, I'm not sure uh, you know, quite how this would played out, but to look at variations in the uh, magnitudes of chaos. And then the last slide. Oh, uh, looking back at my own book, I was worried I didn't have enough humanomics in there, and I don't think I do, but I have these qualifications in there. But this is my granddaughter's take. I told her to go ahead and put some color into the book and try to make it more human. And so (laughs) that's her, her, there's a heart there. You see, that's her drawing of her mom, which is her closest concentric circle. That, that's all, huh? all I right.
1: have. Um, unfortunately, we're at the end of our time, um, but I want to thank everyone uh, here uh, for uh, such a great and stimulating uh, conversation and also to congratulate the two of you again on this uh, great book and to wish everyone here a wonderful end of the semester and whatnot. So please join me and and